1: And I think to get us started tonight, I'd love to ask Leslie to read a little something to get us in the mood with her new book. Does that
0: sound good to you guys? (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to read a section of the book. It sort of um, is a little bit of backstory, but I just realized it kind of comes halfway into the book. So um, I'll just start. Can you guys hear me okay? Sure. Okay. Okay, here we go. How many times had I tried to save my life? The count is excessive, and yet I could never do it. My addiction had a hold on me. Then something happened. Somehow I made it to a rehab in Santa Fe, New Mexico, five days after my last arrest. I arrived out of my mind and was secured in cabin 10, the detox cabin. It was not willpower that stopped me. If I had willpower, I wouldn't have relapsed in the first place. If, uh, I wouldn't have used drugs and alcohol at all, starting as a child. What non-addicts simply do not understand, and it's reasonable that they don't, is that no human power, not mine, not the police's, not the doctors, not the rehab specialists, could stop me. Only surrender could stop me. That split second of grace, one time post-Lynwood, Linwood is the name of the jail that I ended up going to, Not voluntarily, by the way. (laughs) I explained my experience of this gift to a room of sober people. It was like a window that opened, but would stay open only for a millisecond, I said, and a random puff of wind blew me through it. Cabin 10 was notorious. It was the place they put the incorrigible and deathly ill, the suicide risks, and the patients on the list for coding out. I met all four criteria and was assigned a minder who sat with me 24-7 for 48 hours. Susan, a wrinkled, kind lady, think Aunt B from the Andy Griffith Show, attended me. That was her job. The entire time, I couldn't believe anyone would take a job like that. She was so nice, and she drove me so crazy. She talked nonstop stories about her daughter and her dog and her sister and her house. But today I see her ceaseless rambling for what it really was, an act of love. Anything to keep me distracted from the seizure-like DTs, the hallucinations, and the sickness. Nevertheless, for those those two days, I wanted nothing more than for her to shut up. To just let me die. I didn't know at that point the degree to which I had destroyed my life, only that I was very sick and likely in big trouble. That I stayed sober surprised almost everyone. When I left Life Healing Center, my favorite caregiver there, a woman I called Commando because she wore fatigues and combat boots and did prison time, couldn't even say goodbye to me. She was skeptical of my sobriety and had someone send me a note that day that said, if I see you, I'll cry. I will pray for you every day. I loved her fiercely. She had an incontrovertible part in saving my life. When I called her two years after I'd been released from jail to ask her about what I had seen, what I had been like in rehab, she said, to be honest, I'm shocked you're still clean. You did not want to get sober. When you left us, you were not ready to deal with the inside stuff. I didn't think you would make it. Well, here I am calling you sober, I said. I could hear her weeping. Hold on a sec, she said. I'm having a hallmark moment. What she didn't know, and in a way I didn't know either until much later, was that at that rehab I had a profound, fundamental change. One night I woke up out of two days and nights of hallucinations and looked out the window to see a crescent moon in the sky surrounded by stars. Susan was sitting there quietly watching me as I labored through the potentially fatal occupation of detoxing liquor and drugs. I distinctly remember her silhouette in the darkness against what felt like an overly bright shaft of moonlight. Everything seemed to stop. The moon was wavering out the window, almost like it was being held loosely on the branch of a tree. I couldn't be sure if I was still hallucinating, but I could clearly see the dark sky and the play of planetary light. I thought it was beautiful, and I wondered where the moon had gone in the past year and seven weeks of my relapse when I had been in a constant blackout. I had no recollection of seeing the moon or the stars in ages. Hello, moon, I said. Where have you been for the last year? It was then, out of the blue, that the thought came to me that I should stop looking for happiness. That it was the pursuit of happiness and professional and material success that had deposited me right there in the center of my hell in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Somehow I knew that what I needed in order to survive was to learn, really learn how to stop thinking about myself and to love, really love, other people. I don't know why I had this moment of awareness, but it became infinitely clear to me that if I was going to live through this and all future indignities, I had no idea at that moment how horrible my life was about to become, that one day I would be going to jail because of my wreckage, then I would have to find some way to mitigate my affliction and the anguish it had caused. And somehow, I understood this to mean that I would have to search for something else in life, something that would transcend my slavest devotion to immediate gratification and the worldly acquisition of stuff, particularly the preservation of my career and the capitulation to my ego. Except for the moon, everything around me was dark, and I was terrified. It didn't last long, but I suspect it was the first time in my life I'd experienced an awakening, the transcendence of myself.
1: Thank you, Leslie, for starting us off that way. Um, I I adore this book, first of all. Let me just say that. um, And the word that comes to mind when I think of this book, and it's it's not the right word, But the word that comes to mind for me is brave, because, um, and I think brave doesn't fully wrap up what I want to say, but the amount of guts it takes to be this honest um, is not an easy thing. And as I read it, as I read the book, I was very moved by the degree of honesty that um, you were willing to bring to the page. Um, so I, I'm, I'm just in awe. One thing I do want to say on a personal note before I get too much oh there goes my questions before I get into the questions that I prepared is that um, I knew Leslie before all this happened and um, we were uh, friends in the writing world and I knew her cursorily and we had taught together occasionally and we, we had come and so I've, I've known this person and when I met her again after all the things that happened that ended up making this book, it was like meeting. A higher, different version of the person I knew before. Um, that this is a story. That the reason it's so radical of a story is because, as we just saw in that reading, the beauty and brutality um, go hand in hand sometimes. And the, the beauty of the the moon emits, you know. Hallucinations, uh, you know the way transcendence and and change is is hard won. It's a hard scrabble experience. Um, I love, but th- when I when I encountered Leslie again after these things, it was a very different experience because I've been very touched by the um, intense joy that I see in your life and the intense. Um, that this wasn't a passing experience or it wasn't just, get me out of this and I'll be okay and then we can go back to the way things used to be. Right. That this has absolutely changed you. Um, and I, I wonder if you could just talk about that for a moment.
0: You know, it's so interesting because um, when I saw you again, I had the same experience of this was a different person. It was almost like... And the way I interacted, because I remember when I knew her before, I felt like so stilted and uncomfortable, and I was sober, but it was awful, because I wasn't comfortable with myself, and then after this whole harrowing experience, I saw you again, and I just, I was just different, and you were different. And I think part of that is that, I don't know how different I am, but I know that I see the world differently. And so I do see the joy in the world now where I didn't see it before
1: that's yeah. it's one of the things I love about this book is that it, it takes us for those of you obviously who haven't read it and maybe you haven't read much about it it's a story of a woman who and I'm going to have you actually read a place in a minute that explains this but who goes to jail um, and has some very difficult experiences as the result of addiction and alcoholism and, and how that transforms her life and so that sounds like a real downer of a story <laughs> right? Okay, <laughs> but but it is it is a downer but it also has this Amazing uh, redemptive quality to it, um, and it, it moves me very much. So, um, what I'd love to ask you to do is, on page three, you kind of you have a short section that explains part of the book, and there's um, information about uh, the Baroud story first. Oh, yeah. And I don't know if you need to set that up, but if you would just read a little bit so that we get a, a flavor for um, what's going to happen. So I, after the break. There. So
0: also, uh, I ch- so before I came tonight, we were talking about what I should read and there was a funny thing and then there was this. So I chose this. But it it could be very funny. (laughs) I just felt like I needed to set it up. What am I doing? Okay, let's see. So after the break. Oh, Baruch. So I don't know how many of you heard the story about um, this Somali man um, who was arrested for writing something about the state, the poor state of the hospital, and he was arrested and thrown in prison. And the the short version of this is that he he was in this isolated place, and one day, and he thought, "I just want to die. I just want to die." And and then one uh, one day, he heard a knock at the side of the door and it turned out to be a doctor in this hospital that he had complained about and he had a copy of Anna Karenina and so he read it to Barud by knocking, every letter was a, was a sound, was a knock and he read, he read it through the wall by knocking. So it saved his life. And so he said that literature saved his life. And that's what this actually is about, my book. That's why I wrote that prologue. Um, in, on January 12, 2014, I was sentenced to 90 days in Century Regional Detention Facility, Los Angeles County Jail, for charges related, uh, relating to drunk driving drunk. I'd committed my offenses while in a 414 day relapse from double digit years of sobriety. During that year and seven weeks, I was in the chronic state of blackout. I had fallen so profoundly into the mental illness that accompanies alcoholism that I was no longer able to work. I lost every job I had as a freelance writer and writing teacher. My family eventually moved away. My friends no longer able to help me left. I was totally alone. Even the dog was scared of me. She hid in the closet while I stumbled through the empty house. I can only explain my decision to drink again in this way. I had found myself stuck in sobriety. My spirit felt dry and depressed. I couldn't see any way out of a sense of confusion and unhappiness that had come on me when I turned 50. There weren't any crises. There wasn't any one reason. I was just sad, isolated, and lonely. So I drank. That's what alcoholics without a solution do. You could say that one drink led me all the way to Century Regional, known in the vernacular as Linwood. Of those 90 days, I would serve half the time, minus eight days for time served previously, as per California sentencing laws, 37 days. Thank you.
1: Um, So you talk in this book throughout and many times of addiction and alcoholism as a mental illness. And I I would just love you to talk a little bit about that for us. Um, Because I think that for many of us we think, well, it's a matter of willpower. And if only you would, you know, just figure this out and straighten up your act this wouldn't be a problem. Um, because the book goes on to not only discuss alcoholism and addiction, it talks about the problem with um, the, the jail system and, and incarceration and who we're incarcerating and why we're incarcerating them um, and how that plays into this concept of mental illness. And then ultimately it becomes about how books um, that were sent to you during your time in jail were the lifeline like the um, Smalley man that um, got you through. Yes. So, um, if you would just talk about um, your view of uh, alcoholism and addiction as a mental
0: illness. Okay, well, so first of all, this isn't my opinion, this thing I'm about to say, it's a fact that alcoholics are born with a genetic predisposition towards addiction. We have it on our genes. Not everybody that has that in their gene is going to be an alcoholic. It's like cancer. It gets expressed by certain environmental factors. So. I can't help that this is me. This is how I was born and I inherited it. So that's that's that. But what happens is when you are drinking, so I'm thinking about all these suicides lately, you know, and what I'm not hearing is the alcohol or drugs that are probably a part of them. Because we don't talk about alcoholism, we don't want to talk about addiction. It's too shameful. We just have to keep it under the, you know. Oh no, it wasn't. It wasn't alcohol. Or oh, you know, the, I mean, it's so interesting. She killed herself, but it wasn't alcohol. we had to make a point about that. So what happens is, you know, with me, I can speak about myself. I, I, uh, I had been clean a long time. So when I drank, it, I don't know what happened. I couldn't hold it the same way, <laughs> Orlando, and. Um, I I quickly, quickly went into mental illness, like very quickly, and how that manifested is in behavior. So my behavior was bad, I had bad behavior. And it wasn't like I wanted to be that way, obviously if I could have chosen, I wouldn't have done that, because that's not how I want to live my life, and I don't, and I'm not like a crazy, I'm not really a crazy person, only when I drink or use drugs. And so it manifests in in this awful behavior. And what happens in our culture is that because so many people don't understand addiction, we try to treat the behavior. But that's not the problem. So we treat the behavior by locking people up. Or whatever we do to them, you know. But the problem is, you have to treat the mental illness that accompanies the alcoholism. And for me, what that's about is, it's a for me, it's a spiritual disease. It's like I have a hole inside of me that I filled with drugs and alcohol when I was sad. So, what am I going to do? without drugs and alcohol, right? So to me and I think I think all of us, you know, have these holes inside of us. Drunk or not, you know, alcoholic or not. But so I it's the it's what happens after a long time of using or drinking, you do become crazy. That's what happens. You you see them everywhere. Those are normal people actually who just have this thing that went too far.
1: And so for people who get sober and stay sober, does that mean it arrests the
0: mental illness? I think so. I mean, that's the promise of recovery. You know, like I tell people, I didn't get sober again to be crazy. Like, I, that's not what I wanted. You know, I wanted the promise of sanity. I wanted the promise of a full and rich life, which I got this time, you know it just took this experience but but yeah absolutely i mean it does treat the mental illness jail doesn't though Jail doesn't treat the mental illness.
1: So well, let's go there for a second, then, um, to into the uh, how how and why people are incarcerated, and what role um, addiction and alcoholism has to play with incarceration. Will you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So there's like, there's some alarming statistic. I mean, it, I think it's low, but it's something like 55 percent of people incarcerated are in there behind drugs and alcohol. But it's actually. Of all the people I met, I'm going to say it was like 95%. Because, again, we don't admit it and we don't talk about it and people don't know how to assess it. But um, the, the problem with jail is, um, well, so I was sober when I went to jail, So I, and there's a lot of drugs and alcohol. No, there's not alcohol. There's alcohol in prison, the nine-county jail. And um, there's a lot of drugs. There's a lot of drugs, and you can get them anytime. They just hand them out and then the girls bring them in. There's ways to get them in. You'll find out when you read the book how they get them in. (laughs) (laughs) It's really intense. So you can have it anytime you want. So I was staying sober, but all all of the people around me, all of the people around me, I would say that I talked to, were in there because right before they committed their offense, they were drunk or high. And I'm going to say 100% of the people I talked to. So, I mean... And so you put somebody in jail, right? And they're just going to get pissed. We don't know why we're pissed if we're still drinking, right? But they're going to get pissed. And so what they do is they get out and they drink because they're ashamed and they're angry. So that's the revolving door. That's that revolving door. When I left, oh, my God, she was such a bitch. I don't have a problem talking about these people at all. But she. I walked out and she's like see you again real soon, like, I was going to come back, you know? And they all said it to me like it was the funniest thing that that they could ever come up with, you know? And, you know, I wasn't coming back because I had a support system and I had money, and that's the other part of it.
1: Which I'd like you to read on page 197. Um, There's a section there on uh, incarceration that goes to 199. Okay.
0: What section is this? One ninety-seven. This is a surprise for me. We didn't plan this. Yeah. This right here. Yeah. We really didn't. I, I'm. I'm. I didn't have any. Throwing yeah. it out of her so, as we go. So I'm like, ooh. Okay. The women in jail had their secrets. Winel told me hers. So did Ducky. But one thing I celebrated was that few of the women there kept their mouths shut. Even if, in a general way, across the board, Linwood was a sad campus of self-loathing, I knew there was also a vivid celebration of courage, of joy, raunchy, muscular, and brave. Many of the women were there behind their men. Domestic abuse, for instance. I saw one woman come in with the most hideous, beat-up face, to the point that she would probably be blind in one eye for the rest of her life. Her man had beaten her up. She told me he'd gone to jail too, but he was already out. They were charging her, not him, with domestic violence. I had met some women who said they were locked up for selling drugs for their men, and one woman had written a fake prescription so she and her man could get high on Oxy. I took the risk, she said. I didn't want him to beat the shit out of me again. My fellow inmates were not silent women. These were women who knew how to get what they wanted, even if it meant manipulating the system. Unlike Ethan Frome's women with their secrets, those I met in jail were open books. After I was released, I often wished that there was some way to take the whole lot of us, educate us, give us something to eat other than McDonald's, free us from the bondage of drugs and alcohol, provide us with jobs, and then see what would happen for women's rights on the outs. What my eyes saw was a truth that people either don't want to believe or can't. The incarceration of women for crimes of necessity, whether it's stealing food for their babies or money for their addiction, is society's dirty little secret. I met one woman who was sentenced to six months for, months for stealing two pounds of turkey meat for her kids. Appalling. But in American culture, it's just business as usual to keep women of color and the mentally ill, including addicts, from attaining their power by keeping them uneducated, underfed, and incarcerated. The mainstream, regardless of party affiliation, is complicit. Incarcerating those with addictions and mental illness doesn't stop the cycle of addiction and criminal activity. Instead, incarceration perpetuates the revolving door of substance abuse and the crimes that accompany it. And it costs a lot of money, money that might be better spent on mental health solutions that will make a difference. But for some reason, the logic of this falls constantly, frustratingly on deaf ears. I can only speculate as to why. In Ethan Frome, Wharton definitively shows us the entrapment of women in a world that belonged to men. Sometimes it's hard not to think that this paradigm still exists. The irony in choosing to name the book after the man in the story who consciously but unwittingly causes the problems is a scorching and unforgettable choice. I want to write a different book for us someday. The one that shows the world how unfettered our minds and hearts are. The one that shows our brilliance and our capacity for intellectualism, invention, creativity. The one that shows the Wynells and the Duckies and the Miss Browns of the world as they really are. Powerful, intelligent, loving and creative. In my world, we would break them out of a system that without conscience or consideration entraps their best qualities so that they remain forever invisible, crippled, and despised.
1: Thank you. That's one thing I love about this book is that um, with Leslie, through reading the book, I went to jail with her and I got to see what conditions are like there and um... Got to feel the shame that comes along with it. and I'm going to ask you about shame oh, in yeah. a minute, um, and and the way literature was able to be this life raft that kept you alive. But so were the other women that you met there, and um, it seems like they they were just these brilliant, radiant characters that you found in jail. And one I remember was um, locked up because she couldn't afford to pay her parking tickets. Oh, Chandra, um, and yeah. she was pregnant. She was like she was pregnant. She was pregnant and locked up because she couldn't pay um, parking, parking tickets. tickets. Um, and it's, it's just very moving. And so um, would you just talk a little bit, Ed, let, let's also talk about the fact that um, you're a white woman coming from privilege um, and you're going to jail and uh, many of the people there are from very different yeah. backgrounds. And how did that um, blend together or uh, smash together or how
0: did, how did that unfold? Okay, well the first thing is that, ironically, I used to teach (laughs) in prisons and jails, on the other side, and um, I used to teach writing, and so, but I thought I knew all about it, you know, but until you're an inmate, you don't know anything about it, I mean, you really don't, but um, I have to be honest with you, I was not afraid of the women, I was not afraid of the other inmates, I was afraid of the deputies. Um, I was scared of cops. And you'll when you read the book you'll find out why. Um, so that wasn't the thing that frightened me at all. And um, it's funny because th- I, I just feel love for them. I just felt like that experience was a privilege, you know, for me to open my eyes and to get to know people in a way that I would never have been able to know these women of color out on uh, on the outside. It was just an incubator, a different experience. And, you know, they loved me too. It was just amazing, actually. Um, so that wasn't a problem for me. That just wasn't, that wasn't, that was never my issue going in and it was never my issue when I was there.
1: Did you see um their experience in a different way from having um, shared time in jail
0: yeah so absolutely because I you know having worked in jails you know I thought I kind I was pretty arrogant I have to tell you I thought I knew everything about it I was you know I'm a liberal in case you didn't know and um, I thought I had it figured out you know but being this is why I talk about it as being a privilege for me because it really changed my whole image, and view of the world. And I would be able to have recited statistics before about this, that, how many, 95%, blah, blah, blah. But now I know. Now I know. And I can't unsee what I saw. It's a travesty. It's criminal. It's unconscionable. It's wrong. And I know that from my very heart because I saw the people in there. These are people... I, you know, I could go off on this and I just won't. But it's heartbreaking because these are smart women. These are women, you know, I got to tell you something. A single woman who can raise five kids, you know, on $5 a month is a lot stronger than I am. You know what I mean? These are strong, smart women. And it, to think otherwise is really a, an injustice. And that, but we're throwing people away. That's what we're doing. And it's heartbreaking to me. It's heartbreaking, you know. Thank I don't you. know if I and, answered that.
1: And thank you for take, bring, giving me that experience, because it's one that was unfamiliar to me, and also being in jail with you through the book. Um, some of the things that I found interesting was, like, the diet, and um, the... I will never, again, take for granted that I get fiber in my diet on a regular basis, and and you don't have to stand in line for days to get a laxative, because there is no fiber in the diet. Or, um, you know, after I finished reading the book, I climbed into my my bed that night, and I was like so grateful for my pillow, you know, things like that, um, that I think are really beautiful about this book. Um, did you have qualms about writing this? I mean, did you uh, picture you'd be sitting in a room with this this a group of people and tell them I went to pre- I went to jail um, for this length
0: of time for doing this? I'm totally not freaked out about doing this at all. It doesn't bother me at all. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of my experience I'm not ashamed of who I am um, i um, I loved writing this book. I loved writing this book because it really um, you know the literature I got a chance to talk about books you know the, the it's structured around these seven books that I read while I was in there and how they changed my life so I got to talk a lot about literature and that was a lot of fun, but I also You know, you said brave and I got to tell you, I hate it when people say that. I think I already told you, you're so brave, (laughs) but there isn't... I felt brave. I felt brave writing this and here's what I believe, Amy knows this. If you're going to be a writer, write the truth. And you know, I got to say, this is a little off topic, but I have a lot of students and they're so terrified to tell the truth and that this is not the career then. <laughs> and I I really believed the whole time I knew I was telling the truth. I knew what the truth was. I knew what my truth was. I didn't hate myself. So I was going to tell it. There's I and and I, I think that comes from a place of just having absolutely no shame about what happened to me. I couldn't help it. You know, I didn't wake up one day and said I'm going to do this to my family, you know? So um yeah. I, I
1: think that's a good segue to shame. Yeah. That's one thing that, uh, that I think I'd love us to talk about, and I, there's a little section if you'd read on page 69 um, on, about shame.
0: This is this Ruth Ozeki? Right? Yeah. Oh, this yeah. book.
1: You guys got to read this book. Well, tell, tell, us, uh, tell us about the book first so before you read book, the section. So her book, A Tale section.
0: for the Time Being, it was weird. It opens up with this line about, I'm here for the time being. It opens up about time. And I was like, oh, wow, did she write this for me? Like, you know, it felt like she was writing to me. And the part that I'm, I guess I'm going to read, it, it's such an amazing book. Uh, uh, Lunchbox, I'll just quickly, shows up on shore after the tsunami in Japan. It shows up in Canada. And so the the narrator, whose name is the same name as the author, opens this lunchbox up, and then this becomes this whole sort of like zen exploration. And that kind of sounds boring. It's not boring at all. She it, It's such a book of discovery, and I'm telling you, it changed. I don't know how many people here have a book that changed their life. Before I read this book, I never said that I had one, really. There were lots that I liked. This book changed my life. Um, so one of the things she deals with is the difference between conscience and shame. So should I read that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah.
1: I think that's the second section of
0: this. Okay. All right, let's see what I'm reading. Oh, here it is. Is that it? Yeah. yeah. Good, 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 good. Oh, yeah. Good. There was one section of Ozeki's book that changed my life <laughs> so profoundly that as I read it, I felt a physical shift sweep through my body. I've never experienced anything like it before where quite literally I knew after having read it that I was a different person. It was like watching my old ideas fall from a bridge and splash into the water below. It began with a section about the shame Now's dad felt after designing an interface for the gaming market that prompted the US military to inquire about using it for real warfare. So Now is one of the characters, the father character. Uh, is the main girl character, and uh, this is about her dad. Now's dad wanted to install a conscience into the software so that it couldn't be used for mass destruction. He recognizes his desire to change the interface as a good act, but one motivated by a weak impulse. Shame. It was the very same sensibility that lurked behind his decision to put such destruction into the universe in the first place. Now's dad explains how the politicians in Japan have tried changing history by erasing the horrors of Manchu from the history books to ease the culture of shame in which the Japanese exist. By changing our history and our memory, they try to erase our shame. This is why I think shame must be different from conscience. Shame comes from the outside, but conscience must be a natural feeling that comes from a deep place inside an individual person. All of a sudden, sitting there in my cell, I comprehended what a stealthy foe shame is. All it really wanted was for me to die in a pool of self-pity. I saw with amazing clarity its ridiculousness as I realized how shame as a state of mind so readily stood in the way of a person's ability to redeem their bad behavior. Can we stop there or keep going? You want to go?
1: Fifth, uh, your number thing.
0: Okay. On the inside cover of Ozeki's book, I wrote a list of how I thought shame destroyed people. It read as follows: One, keeps us mired in the belief that we are the sum total of our deeds; we mope around in the past. Two, while living in it, we slip out of the reality of our present. Three, it's not real. It comes from the outside, like a prosecutor keeping you in line by impugning your spirit undivine. For shame blinds us to our goodness, and when the good in us is in the shadows of self-hatred, we are incapable of acknowledging or fixing our wrongs. Shame wants us dead. It's the impetus behind every suicide. Therefore, it serves no evolutionary function. If shame is useless, then I can let it go. I want to say one thing. I'm talk. I'm not talking about people who murder or rape. Okay, that's a different thing, and I don't care about their shame. And I think they need to be prosecuted. Okay, so I'm like, I'm not like, oh, let them be. Okay, s- s- I'm talking about just regular people who have a disease, and I really want to be clear about that because I'm not saying that. You know, anyway, that Open I just want to yeah. be very clear about that.
1: And you go on in that section, right after that section, you go on to talk about all the amends you made before you got to this place. Right. So it wasn't like a You know, you never say in here I did nothing wrong, and you never say there's nothing for me to clean up. You you tell us all the ways, all the steps you took to clean up. So now that you've done the clean up, you've admitted you've whatever. Now you can let the shame go.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, no, I actually I couldn't for a minute because. See, so I did, I didn't know I was going to jail. My attorney, I'll give you his name, don't ever hire him. Um, I didn't put his name in the book. But he kept saying, you're not going to jail, you're not going to jail. I'm like, good, because I don't want to go. And so, but, but regardless of that, this is what I understood about myself. I understood that I had a conscience because no one had to tell me, not a judge, not a lawyer, no one had to tell me that I needed to clean up do you know what i'm saying and so i didn't do that because i thought i was going to jail and i wanted to look good i cleaned up because i couldn't live with myself for the things i had done and i hadn't i didn't hurt anybody i, I rammed into it's not funny i rammed into a guy's car while I was parking and I owed him like $700 And then I, but then I went to the police and I made amends to them because I was in the middle of all the nightmare and you know I made amends to my family I made amends to my friends it was just something that I had to do because I had to do it and that's when I started to realize that the shame that I felt was coming from out there the, a culture that tells me I'm bad the culture that tells me my disease is bad Do you know what I'm saying? And so I realized that that was not you, but like you, like them saying to me those words, not me saying it to me. And then when I really realized who I was, I just realized, well, I have a conscience. And I think that's more important. Thank you. And the, the last question I want to ask, and then I'm going to open it up
1: for questions, is uh, tell us a little bit about how literature got you through, like what the feeling was to be told you uh, that there was books waiting for you, and which ones... You know, you were ecstatic oh my God. to see... And
0: I loved getting these books. You could have three a week, and, you know, they they have to come straight from the publisher. So they would... I would look at my little tiny window, right? Little tiny... And I would see them arrive, right? And there they were. And then they wouldn't give them to me. That was, like the worst hell I've ever been through because you, I wanted them so bad but when they came I was so happy they made me so happy I would open them up and I would do you guys do this? I smell the... And I would look... Uh, before I even opened it, I would look at the... Everything, I'd look at the picture, the acknowledgements, all that stuff just... I loved it so much. And then I would read. And it, it was... I mean, I was reading a book a day, you know, and I hadn't been doing that in a long time and I'd forgotten how important literature is. And I read fiction and nonfiction and Pema children and all kinds of poetry and I just... You know, as all these other parts of me were dying off in a way... All the stuff I didn't ever want to take home with me, right, or ever live with again. This other thing was growing inside of me, which is just I love writing. I love literature. Books are radical. They're the most important things, you know, on the earth. They don't. They don't even look good to me. On a, I don't have a Kindle, like because if I can't touch it, that that was the experience. It was almost like falling in love. That's what it was like.
1: And it, is it ironic that um, the gift that you were waiting to receive each time someone sent you a book is the gift that you've given all of us?
0: Oh, yeah, I didn't think of that. that it's, it's, you know, yeah. we've
1: all, there, there are people, myself included, that um, needed to read this and that are waiting for this book to come, and what a wonderful gift. That instead of allowing, at one point you read there that shame wants us dead. Yeah. Um, instead of allowing the shame to do that, the ability to rise above it and then transform what had been an Experience into something that becomes a gift to someone else. Yeah. So I thank you for that, thank and I'd, I'd like to see if we have questions from the audience. And first, let's let's thank Leslie. Thank you. Um, does anyone have a question? I can repeat it so everyone can hear it if we can. Who, who? Oh. so the question is she was sober for 10 years or longer and then what caused the change
0: like why did I drink again I was miserable so remember what I was saying earlier about that hole inside of you so I had a hole inside of me that wasn't you can't okay so here's the tricky part okay you can't you don't, you're not better when you stop That's the mental illness part. You're not better when you stop. There's this part of you inside of you that needs to be filled. That the drugs and alcohol or what? Sex, movies, um, you know, food, shopping, emails, all that stuff that we're trying to fill our holes inside of us with, right? Well, so you took my salvation away from me. It was gone. But I didn't have this other... I didn't have this other thing filling me up. So... Um that was the only solution I had. So that's what I did. Cuz okay. it now
1: yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Did, did everyone hear the question? The, qu- the question was um, if the drugs and alcohol were not the thing that was filling it, was it the books and the literature? That's not what I okay, then. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. and so, yes. if you had gone to a the doctor, they might have this, and other things, the I'm
0: not
1: even
0: that,
1: other thing Right.
0: So I'm going to tell you what evened me out, okay? And the books are a part of that. Faith, God, and I know, I know, I like, oh, oh who's God? I don't know what God is. I don't believe in God. It's not that God. Okay, and so for me, part of that faith comes through words, because when I see somebody put together words that make a beautiful sentence, I don't know, I, it floats my boat, I mean I don't, and I, I feel like that's a gift, it's an art, right, a beautiful painting, you know, that's God. That's what I'm talking about, is those kinds of things that I just, I was starving, I was in a desert, right? I was in the desert for beauty. And so that's part of it. Did, did that answer your question? Yeah. Thank you.
1: Are there other questions? Oh Yes. Let me see if I can repeat that in the hyper in the Trump era and hyper awareness about race and class that someone um, could go through that as a, as a beautiful experience, but that for most people it's not a beautiful experience. And how do you relate oh, to
0: well,
1: that? Uh, yeah.
0: Oh, so, okay. First of all, it was not a beautiful experience. It sucked every freaking minute of it. They treat you like hell, and it was horrible and it was demeaning. And they treated me just like the African American women on this side and the Latina women on this side. And they they treated us all the same. So, so I, so let me speak to that because my good fortune is my privilege, right? I I got to have be educated. I don't make a lot of money. I don't, but I have enough to pay the mortgage, right? So and I could pay off my fines. So I came out of it with a loving husband, a family, children you know, people that love me. A lot of people that I spent that horrible time with don't have support. They don't have education. And I, I'll talk to you later about my theory about that because it has a lot to do with Trump. It has a lot to do with denying people who deserve it, education. It has a lot to do with denying people, you know, of taking education from people. All of that stuff that we have systematically done in this culture. And it's always people of color, right? So that's as far as I'm going to go with that. But I will say to you that I am—I'm not going to apologize for my good fortune, right? Because I'm—that's this, this is me, right? And so, but I had—I had that support, and you know, God, I'm grateful for that. I don't have to go back there. But a lot of people—that's why, because they—they don't have education, they don't have enough food to eat in their refrigerator. They don't have a car to get around LA. It's a horrible experience and I watched that and I lamented it and I cried about it with my bunkies. And it, you know, I... Yeah, I mean, I think we all have the opportunity to do what we can to, you know, we have an opportunity right now to do what we can.
1: Thank you. There was a hand over here. Uh, Yeah, Terry.
0: I just that comment I was Yeah, I know what you're saying. I have an answer. Do you want to say something? So the, the question is, when
1: Leslie made the comment earlier about well I'm not talking about murderers and rapists um, and Terry's asking for clarification on are they not also under the influence of drugs and alcohol and mental illness and redeemable Of course, like the rest? Yeah. Of
0: course they're redeemable. And I didn't mean to say that and if I sounded flip about that I'm sorry. There's somebody in this room who I respect a lot And she prosecutes really bad people. And I didn't want to disrespect that. And I don't know that the people she prosecutes are redeemable. I don't know. But I, too, have worked where you're working now. And I have been with people who are former gang members and murderers and whatever, you know, and they are fully redeemable. We are all, we are all redeemable, all of us. I, I, I was being flip because I just, I just wanted to make sure that we, we get the gravity of my situation. I'm not, hurt. that's not my hurdle, you know, mine is, I'm just an alcoholic, so that's all I can talk about, but I believe... That most people who are not too mentally messed up and even with drugs, can't get better, right? I believe everybody's redeemable, and everybody, everybody, is worthwhile. everybody. So I hope that answered your question. Yeah. Thank you. Joe.
1: Oh. Is it your thinking or is it connected to your sense of God uh, and how do you know when it trusts you So the question is um, uh, uh, can you, Am I born with I was my conscience? Listening that, yeah, is whether someone's born with a conscience does it come from a, an external source or is it in no, no, no. S- just you, well, yes, you. Oh, is me, it, what, me? Well, I I just got you'd
0: Oh yeah. So and then you also asked um how do you know it's right? Okay, so that's easy to answer, which is if you're hurting someone, it's not right. Right? And um my i call my consciousness god consciousness but i don't really I, again i mean i'm jewish but i don't even really practice i'm not really a practicing jew so i don't i don't i'm not in the institution of religion okay that's not how i access my spiritual life but i believe that there i believe we all i believe we all have a conscience i really believe i actually believe we all are born good and that we get lost you know, we people just get lost, and um, and and it's really, really, really hard to find your way back because you have to do things you don't want to do. You kind of have to let everything about your old life go away, and it's hard to let that go. it's a really complicated question, but um, I don't even know if I answered it. Yeah, I mean, I was just curious. If you, your consciousness was thinking
1: that. Totally, yeah. Yeah, I think we have have time for
0: one more. There is. Totally. Because, I mean, right? Everything about me has to be, so if that's part of me. Sure. Oh, oh okay. I, I just have a question about your sense of humor, which is more yeah. um, We can use it to be that, but we can also use it to protect as to the problem. So how would that help you or hurt you? well so the good news was oh she's saying how does sense of humor hurt me or help me in recovery do you think I'm funny
1: I'd also like to point out that though this sounds like a really serious book there's some very funny parts in it Um, there's a nice lightness to it that that you've um, reminded us about
0: so the good news is that I was not funny when I started my recovery and um, at all. You can ask my family um, but um, are you asking like does it keep me from connection? Right. No. No because first of all I don't think I'm that funny but but um, no because so here's what happened. Okay I'll tell you this is what happened. We'll end on this. Um, I changed so much that I will. I've met some people that are recently new friends of mine, and immediately we. I find I have been able to find the way to connect to people, and if some of that is humor to get into that connection, then that's how I do it. But it never. It humor is about joy, and it never gets in the way of of. Um, creating a deeper and more profound relationship. But here's the interesting thing: not everybody wants to talk like that. So I'm like, okay, that's fine, you know. But that, that those are the people who are my friends because, you know, I like to, I like to get into it, you know. Um, with that, we will close. And um, if you'd like
1: to get copies, or. New talk. And let's thank Bernadette for yeah. all of work, right? <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Leslie. Uh, we still have some more cake, so please uh, feel free to help yourself. What i will do is I'll move all this out of the way, and I'll bring out a table for her to sign behind. Uh, we'd love it if you uh, bought your books first before you got them signed. Um, and uh, thank you all very much for coming.
0: Thank you, guys. Am I just sitting here? Okay.